Hey guys, this is Kabane. Um, before we get into the subject of this video, I just want to mention as usual that if you're interested in supporting these videos and getting access to certain exclusive videos, as well as at the premium level, uh, having um, an hour of guaranteed one-on-one -on -one discussion time per month, please consider subscribing to my Patreon. I also want to say that uh, for Christmas, I got a new microphone, which I have not yet connected, so this is not the new microphone, but it should take care of some of the sound issues that some of you have mentioned. So today we are going to be continuing our series on the biblical doctrine of tradition, and we are going to be taking a look at my speculative um, account of where precisely the apostles received the liturgical pattern of the church's existence because if you've followed this series so far then you remember that tradition is that which is transmitted along with scripture in the context of the church's liturgical existence it's transmitted along the lines of the succession of bishops and the succession of bishops of course occurs as part of the liturgy and it is perpetuated and commemorated in a liturgical context when the presbyter will commemorate his bishop, the bishop will commemorate his primate, and the primate will commemorate other primates as well as his synod, leading to a mutual realization and thus expression of communion in language. So in that very context where we call on the name of the Lord with one voice, where we express our worship of the Lord in the one faith which continues our communion. This is why we recite the creed, where we have one Lord, one God, one Spirit, and we recite the creed in relation to the Eucharist. Well, it's in this very context where our speech is that which unites us to God that we also audibly commemorate the apostolic succession of bishops and thus that same uh, glue which binds us with God also binds us with each other through the Episcopal hierarchy. So today I want to talk about where exactly I think the apostles may have gotten the liturgical form of worship because we simply don't have a book like Leviticus in the New Testament um, and more than where is when. So we're told in Acts that during the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus was teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God. What was contained in this teaching? I think there are several clues. Uh, first, uh, this is when the apostles are baptized. Uh, Jesus instructs the apostles to baptize the nations in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16 after his resurrection. And it makes perfect sense that the apostles themselves would be baptized during this period. Uh, in addition to this simply being necessary, I mean, there's no other time in which their baptism makes sense, there is a tradition that Jesus baptized the apostle Peter personally, who in turn baptized the twelve, who in turn baptized their close associates. So by the time we reach Acts chapter 1, we find the twelve, the Virgin Mary, and 120 others functioning as an extension of the citizenship of Israel who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. So the practice of baptism and its particular form must have been laid out then. I've argued in previous videos 
that the references to believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth that he is Lord uh, refers to the confession of early apostolic baptismal creeds which become the Apostles' Creed and then ultimately the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creeds. A second, in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes out on the Apostles uh, the Holy Spirit and he gives them the authority to remit and retain sins. Throughout the Gospel of John and in the Apocalypse, one of the major themes is the gathering together of the people of God into the body of the Messiah who is the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In other words, this is the new temple. Jesus refers, for example, to many dwelling places in his Father's house. The Gospel of John opens with two disciples asking Jesus where he is dwelling. Jesus commands the beloved disciple who represents us all to take Mary into his own dwelling place. And Jesus dwells in the side of the Father and the beloved disciple dwells in the side of Jesus and us along with him. The dwelling place of God is the Lord Jesus Christ and there are many dwellings because there are many who have been baptized into the name of the Lord through the Spirit and dwell in the sight of Jesus and are thus constituted as one. In connection to this, the Gospel of John lays a major emphasis on baptism in the Eucharist. Now, while we're never given the explicit commands to baptize and celebrate the Eucharist in the Gospel of John, because John knew about the other three Gospels and wrote with the expectation that his readers would study them. Particularly, I think Richard Baucom has made a good case that John wrote his Gospel to be read together with the Gospel of Mark. Now you'll notice the theme throughout John of two witnesses bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus or to something else. And in the Gospel of John, the witnesses are the Apostles and the beloved disciple, i.e. John the son of Zebedee, and the Apostle Peter are often paired together. Peter is the basis for the testimony of the Gospel of Mark, and I think that is the theological explanation for John's being read together with Mark. These are the two witnesses which attest to the Lordship and Messianic identity of Jesus. Now, John writes his Gospel with the expectation that you would have already read the Synoptic Gospels, and thus he writes it as a expansion and commentary on certain things which he knows we already know from the Synoptic Gospels, i.e. he selects which teachings of Jesus he includes and he arranges them uh, in order to give a spirit-inspired commentary on that which we already know from the preceding three Gospels. And don't take anything I just said to mean that it's not fully historical. Um, so in keeping with the sets of seven uh, throughout both John and Revelation, uh, we find seven specific images of the Eucharist and seven specific images of baptism. There are seven I am sayings in John, and then there are seven I am the sayings in John. And that is because Jesus' purpose is to disclose the name of the Father, and the name of the Father is the Son through the Spirit and the character of God is disclosed through the Incarnation. And this is very clear in John 1, 1 to 18, where uh, the evangelist tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And this is, in fact, a direct quotation from the Septuagint of Exodus 34, where God reveals his name to Moses, and it's the Lord, Lord of God, merciful and, and gracious, full of compassion, and so forth. 
And that is a major text in the Old Testament. It's echoed throughout the law and the prophets, especially the book of the Twelve. Point being, in the Gospel of John, the Incarnation takes that place, and it is in the Incarnation that we receive these, this sevenfold revelation that Jesus is God, that's the I Am sayings, and that God is like this. So the seven I Am the sayings. Uh, so the first I Am the saying is, I am the bread of life. And the last is, I am the true vine. Bread and wine. The Spirit is the person who gathers together the children of God into one house for God's dwelling, and the apostles are given in John chapter 20 the grace of the priesthood. And all of this structures and makes intelligible the pattern and shape of Jesus' revelation of God's character. So if you're interested in the identity of the seven references or theological explanations of baptism and the Eucharist, we have for baptism, John chapter 1. This is where uh, John the Baptist explicitly narrates the baptism of Jesus. Uh, then we have John chapter 3, where there is a dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus about rebirth from water and the Spirit. Then there's John chapter 5, which is the healing at the pool. Then there's John chapter 9. There's the healing of the man born blind by mud with spit, i.e. the creation of a new man, just as the God of Israel takes dirt and mixes it with the Holy Spirit and thus creates Adam, and Jesus commands this man to go and wash himself in the pool of Siloam. Then in John chapter 13, we have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Then in John chapter 19, we have Jesus pouring forth blood and water from his side, i.e. constituting his bride, just as Eve is taken from the side of Adam. And indeed, we have the women who are identified as present in John's gospel, accentuating and underscoring this theme. And then we have, finally, John chapter 21. This is where Peter leaps into the water to reach Jesus on shore. As kind of a bonus tidbit, this text is linked to John chapter 13 uh, by its common emphasis on the theme of clothing. It's being followed by a meal confirming its baptismal symbolism because baptism is very consistently paired with the Eucharist. Okay, so you are baptized and then you have a meal with God. You are made a son of God and then you sit at the Father's table. As for the Eucharist, we've got John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where water is transfigured into wine. Then we have John chapter 4, Jesus teaching about the drinking of living water to the Samaritan woman. And third, we've got John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, which is eating, about, eating the flesh and blood of Christ. And that's combined with the feeding of the 5,000, which uses Eucharistic language uh, in a very... Um, explicit way. Uh, then John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then John chapter 5, uh, this is the Passover meal where Jesus says, I am the vine. And of course, it is at this meal that the Eucharist is explicitly instituted. It's fascinating how much of Jesus's um, words make sense in the context of a Passover meal or of, and of the institution of the Eucharist, even though John doesn't tell us explicitly that that is what's going on. Uh, then John chapter 19, Jesus uh, drinks his sabbatical wine on the cross. And then in John chapter 21, we've got the feast of fish and bread on the shore, which is linked to the uh, uh, feeding of the 5,000. Some of the same language is used, both fish and bread. And Jesus uses Eucharistic language when he says, take and eat. 
And this is also notably, they are gathered around a charcoal fire and we should always be thinking of the fact that altars are uh, dinner tables and the fire which burns on the altar is the fire of divine presence which gathers and attracts people uh, to that location. We are gathered around the name of the Lord that is gathered around his presence. And if you're ever in a cold place and you see a fire light up, you will note that fires just naturally gather and attract people and they engage in dialogue and conversation and new relationships are created. Also notably, uh, the last reference in John to a charcoal fire, in fact, I believe it's the only two references, is when Peter denies Jesus, i.e. the question is which community is Peter going to choose? At the one he denies Jesus and at this other he is now restored to his position and he learns something about himself that he doesn't in fact love Jesus more than everybody else. Uh, okay, so um, all of this I think gives us a right way to read the relationship of John chapter 20 um, to the day of Pentecost. Uh, John 20 uh, gives the spirit John 20 is where Jesus gives the spirit to the apostles for the, their consecration to the ministerial priesthood, while Pentecost is the spirit for the whole church. All the baptized, their priests of creation, and in terms of their access to the presence of God, are even higher than the high priest of Israel under the uh, Old Covenant. Uh, I think it's notable that in John chap or in uh, Acts chapter 2, rather, the key thing about the spirit's descent is that he descends upon the apostles so that the apostles might extend outwards that spirit which they already possess through their preaching to the nations who gather to Jerusalem. I will talk about this in other videos, but um, we know that this is not a Johannine Pentecost. Um, one way we know that is because John actually gives us a narration of the day of Pentecost in Revelation 8, 1 to 4, where Jesus, as angel of the Lord, takes fire from the heavenly altar and casts it on the earth. Uh, and there's thunder and lightning and all this Sinai imagery because Pentecost, uh, Old Covenant Pentecost, that is, actually commemorates the giving of the Torah uh, at Sinai. So Jesus says to the apostles here in John 20, As the Father sent me, so I send you. In John 10.36, Jesus, in the context of his self-identification as the shepherd of Israel, says that the Father consecrated and sent him into the world. This is the language of Jesus as the high priest, particularly this language of consecration. Uh, if the apostles are sent as the Father sent Jesus, then the apostles are, by implication, the chief priests under Jesus the Messiah as one high priest. There's more. In John chapter 21, Jesus places Peter at the forefront of his apostles, something which is clearly taught in our liturgics and our patristic tradition before and after the schisms. The specific relation of this to the papacy has been discussed in other of my videos, but is beyond the scope of this particular video. And at the same place, Jesus instructs Peter to feed my sheep. Jesus, as high priest, is the shepherd of Israel, and Peter is likewise called a shepherd. And when Jesus says to Peter that he should feed my sheep, we should take this in a Eucharistic context. Let us not forget that the context of this commissioning is Jesus serving the apostles a meal of 
bread and fish. And bread signifies Israel. There are 12 loaves of face bread in the or in the holy place of the t uh, tabernacle and temple. And the fish signify Gentiles. The sea signifies the Gentile world. We see that in Daniel chapter 7 and elsewhere. And there are also seven fish, which connects with the 70 nations of the world. There's much more which demonstrates this connection. But for the sake of brevity, I won't go into all of that right now. I think I talked about it a bit in my video on um, uh, biblical symbolism in relation to um, uh, numbers. Not the book of numbers, but numbers like 1, 2, 3, 4, and so forth. And Jesus, in this same context, tells the apostles to take and eat. This is language that's only used in a Eucharistic context and is a quotation of the words of institution. You'll note also it's there in Revelation chapter uh, 10, where take and eat is spoken by Jesus, who's acting in his office as angel of the Lord, ending the Old Covenant. And we are told that it is sweet as honey, which in fact was the same taste as manna, because in the Gospel of John, Revelation's twin book, in the Gospel of John, the Eucharist is linked very clearly to the uh, manna from heaven. There is only one other place besides John chapter 20, or John chapter 21, pardon me, where Jesus speaks of feeding and food in the Gospel of John. Uh, and that's John chapter 6. This is where Jesus is the bread of life, who feeds God's children with his flesh and blood. So rolling all of this together, Peter is identified as the chief of Jesus's priestly under-shepherds, who are responsible for feeding God's children with the Eucharist, the flesh and the blood of Christ. Uh, one more point on the apostolic priesthood in relation to Peter, and this is something that you will find across the Gospels. In John chapter 20, the tomb is described as the Holy of Holies. Uh, Jesus, the incarnate Lord, had dwelt there, and there were two angels inside, one at the head and one at the foot of Jesus's burial stone. Uh, this is a clear reference to the Holy of Holies, where the seat of the Lord had two cherubim on either side, and this fulfills the prologue of John. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now this word for word, logos, actually the word for word uh, in the Hebrew Bible is used for the inner sanctuary of the temple, i.e. the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple uh, in 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter 7. So you can see this theologically as the Holy of Holies became flesh and tabernacled among us because the logos is the archetype for the the, um, uh, for the creation and thus of the miniature representation of the creation in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, we read about uh, this tomb, which is the Holy of Holies, and I think there are some very interesting theological implications of this for our annual celebration of Pascha in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and why a fire is so important for that ritual. Um, we read about this tomb uh, that Peter and the beloved disciple, they ran to this tomb together. Uh, the beloved disciple got there first, but he waited outside until Peter entered, and then he went. Uh, in John, the beloved disciple signifies the whole people of God, whom Jesus loved to the end. Uh, that is why, behold your mother, which is a twin statement to Pilate's, behold the man, i.e. Adam on the one, Eve on the other, behold your mother is commanded to all of us, because John 
is a stand-in and a representation of all who are incorporated into the uncreated love of Jesus. This is likewise why we hear of the beloved disciple that he is at the breast or bosom of Jesus, as the Son was in the bosom of the Father in John 1.18, the only two times the word is used in the Gospel of John. Uh, we are to read this as a statement about the whole church, which dwells in the Son, who in turn dwells in the Father. And note that this is said while he is sitting at that very table where the Lord Jesus institutes the Eucharist. And remember what Jesus says of the Eucharist, which is that those who partake of his flesh and blood will dwell in him, and he will dwell in us. The same language is exposited in some detail at this Eucharistic table. So if the beloved disciple signifies the people of God, then Peter signifies the bishop who celebrates the liturgy and who gathers the church into the inner sanctuary around him. And indeed, there is a consistent tradition that links the keys of Peter to the person of the bishop who holds presidency over the Eucharist. Next, the period of 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension is a typological fulfillment of the story of the Exodus. Israel is baptized in the Red Sea, dwells in the wilderness for 40 years, and then ascends into the land of promise. Note that the land is always described as up in relation to Egypt and is a symbolic ascent. Uh, Joseph prophesies when of the time when Israel will go up from Egypt. And just as bones, that Hebrew word for bones also means self, when Joseph prophesies that Israel will take his bones up into the land of promise, this is a very strong type of the resurrection of Jesus. So what is it that happens during these 40 years in the wilderness? Well, it is during this period of Israel's story that the whole system of tabernacle worship is laid out in the Torah. It's not laid out all at once, but it is given uh, in response to particular occasions of Israel's obedience and disobedience in the wilderness. We have the order of sacrifices and we have the rules for the indwelling of the divine presence. All of this is occurring in these 40 years. We have things like the rule for the cleansing from intense impurity in Numbers 19 and many other commandments and provisions are made during this period. Paul in Romans 5 speaks of the period from the fall of Adam to Moses. He speaks of it as a particular epoch. He says, from Adam to Moses, death reigned. And I think we can see what happens at Sinai as essentially the restarting of what Adam was supposed to begin at, on the morning of the fall, which I think took place on the first Sabbath day. So the Garden of Eden surrounded the presence of God, which dwelt on the holy mountain and came in glory to meet Adam on that Sabbath day. There is a strong case that Adam fell on the Sabbath evening, which remember precedes the morning. He tried to cover it up by spending the night making a garment out of fig leaves. This would presumably take some time, especially if you've never done it before. And he was found by God that next morning when God came in glory. That is, he 
Adam and Eve heard the sound of God coming in the spirit for the day, that is the day of the Lord, where God in his glorious light comes and shines his light on the world to inspect it and see whether it corresponds with its archetype, an archetype which is present in the Logos. And the original intents, i.e. what would have happened had Adam not rebelled, of uh, God's coming in glory that first Sabbath morning, was to provide Adam with the formal instructions for his task in developing the creation. You'll note that Exodus 3 doesn't tell Moses to demand that Israel permanently leave Egypt. Rather, Moses is to ask for a three-day period where they can go to the holy mountain to worship with peace offerings, the only sacrificial offering which is consumed partially by God and partially by Israel. Remember, you are what you eat, you eat the same thing, you're joined to each other. That is fulfilled, that is the command to worship with peace offerings, in Exodus chapter 24, where we have a meal of 70 elders of Israel, where Moses sprinkles the blood on Israel and says, this is the blood of the covenant, i.e. the precise words of Jesus instituting the Holy Eucharist. When Adam is exiled from Eden, the access of man to the presence of God was cut off and sealed up. And in the flood, that sanctuary is destroyed. Recall that the Old Covenant does not just begin with Moses, but it is something which regulates the relationship of God to the entire human race, and thus begins at the creation of the world and the creation of man. And one of the central features of the Old Covenant is a central sanctuary. Jesus speaks of the New Covenant in John chapter 4 as the time when the Spirit will be present throughout the world, allowing men to worship God in spirit and truth wherever they might be found because his divine presence is communicated from one end of the world to the other. And there is a central sanctuary, a ladder to heaven, in the beginning, that is Mount Eden. And you should also keep in mind that the temple is not just something for Israel. This is a feature of the creation which functions for the entire human race. Israel offers 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world on the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to the biblical model, Gentiles were permitted to participate in Israel's entire liturgical life except for Passover. They could go up to the altar and offer sacrifices. So Jesus goes to the second temple and he finds there's this thing called the court of the nations. They're excluded from the temple and says, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den or a hiding place of thieves. So at Sinai, this ladder from heaven, which had been eliminated in the flood, it begins to operate again. But it begins to operate in a form that made provisions for the deep sinfulness of the children of Adam. And that sinfulness means that God's presence is intensely dangerous. People die merely from accidentally touching the Ark of the Covenant. Now, uh, all things operate according to their nature. This is not a statement that God has sent this individual to hell. It is rather a statement that objectively, because of the wiring of the human being and because of what it means for God to exist in this place, it is simply dangerous for man to come into that kind of contact with the presence of God. This is the covenantal significance of Sinai for the whole world and the whole history of redemption. You cannot have the incarnation unless you have what is done in and through the tabernacle and the temple. The 40 years after the Exodus where Israel is in the wilderness uh, 
was a period where the precise ordering of Israel's early worship at the sanctuary was set up and ordained. This is where God comes and he dwells personally to begin his personal tutelage of the covenant nation because only by developing the covenant nation in the way that he did and in spurring the full manifestation of evil for what it is and spurring the full development of the righteous within Israel, only by doing those things would the world be made prepared for the enormous change that came in the incarnation of the word of God, where God permanently bound himself to the life of the world. This liturgy is the liturgy by which Israel related to God through the temple, and it operated on behalf of all mankind until the coming of the Messiah, where the veil was torn open and the presence of God was opened to man for the first time since Adam. That 40-day period between the resurrection of Jesus is the typological fulfillment of the 40-year period. So between the resurrection and ascension, there is a miniaturized wilderness period where the order of the liturgy under the new covenant and the way of accessing God's presence through baptism and the Eucharist was taught directly by the resurrected Lord to the apostles. Hence, when we find the apostolic church of Acts, from the very beginning, they are aware of how to baptize. They are aware how to seal that baptism with the Holy Spirit and how to celebrate the Eucharist liturgically. The apostles' teaching and the uh, communion and the breaking of bread and the prayers is the phrase used in Acts chapter 2. The apostles' teaching is likely the liturgical reading of the Torah and prophets, followed by the apostolic interpretation of the scriptures, what we call the homily that corresponds actually in the order of the making of the covenant to God directly speaks to Israel in Exodus 20 and then Moses has to go and speak on God's behalf in Exodus 21 to 23 where he gives the book of the Torah. Uh, as the books of the New Testament were written they were added to the liturgical readings uh, identifying them as scripture equal in authority with the Old Testament. I don't think there was ever a period where the church was not aware that these books were of scriptural authority. Uh, the Bible existed as soon as it was produced. There was never a time when these books existed as anything other than canonical, as I've talked about elsewhere. Uh, we know directly that the Apostle Paul commanded his letters to be read liturgically. This is preserved in Judaism and in scripture to the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians, he declared that a person who does not regard his letters as the command of God is not to be accepted. They are to be excommunicated. They are not to be allowed to gather around Christ our Pascha, i.e. the communion of the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. I think that uh, this may well be the impetus for the composition of the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew in AD 30. I have a video on Matthew where I've talked about this, this theory. I, I think it was written in Hebrew because it was meant to be used liturgically, and that was the liturgical language. It was written in AD 30 to provide the Messiah's teaching. Matthew is arranged as a teaching gospel. It's organized into five blocks of messianic teaching after the pattern of the five-book Torah, and it was written to be used in a liturgical setting. So this idea, I think that the 40 days are the crucial point for the entrusting of the apostles with what we might call the deposit of faith uh, and the liturgical pattern in which that deposit exists and is developed explains an enormous amount of data. 
Uh, it explains the particular liturgical nature of the unwritten tradition, which is identified by the fathers. It explains the necessary background for what we know of the apostolic church of Acts. And it fits like a glove to what we see Jesus actually doing after his resurrection, especially in the Gospel of John. These things were not written down explicitly in the Gospels because the Gospels were meant for public conception. While the liturgy of the faithful was that which manifested the mystery of the kingdom of God and was accessible only to the baptized. Think about our communion hymns. I will not speak of thy mysteries to thine enemies. The doors, the doors, let us be attentive. Uh, and Paul's speaking of himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. Nothing is hidden except so that it might be revealed, but it is only revealed to those who are incorporated into Christ. For the same reason that God restricted his presence to uh, uh, mankind under the Old Covenant, because if he was fully present, he would immediately have killed everyone simply by the nature of the case. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Um, I will talk to you again very soon.